2: This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this week on the show, we have an actor who has quietly managed to give some of the most consistently funny performances on TV over the past 15 or so years. You probably know Zach Woods as Gabe from The Office, or maybe Jared from Silicon Valley. Now he's added a new, deeply uncomfortable character to his repertoire. Public radio host Lauren Caspian on a new series premiering this week on Peacock called In the Know. The show, which Zach co-created with Mike Judge and Brandon Gardner, mixes stop-motion animated characters with live-action footage of actual celebrities like Mike Tyson, Ken Burns, Jonathan Van Ness, and others who play themselves as the interview guests on the fictional radio show that's sort of like a third-rate fresh air with Terry Gross. As I tell Zach at the top of our conversation, this parody of what it's like to interview famous people on Zoom hit a little too close to home for me. You know, in the best way. Zach and I spend a lot of time in this episode talking about how intimidating it was to join The Office in its sixth season and the experience of getting to help define a show like Silicon Valley from the very beginning. But I want to start with a scene from In the Know, in which his character Lauren greets intern Chase, played by Charlie Bushnell, and clashes with his boss, Barb, who was voiced by J. Smith Cameron, a.k.a. Jerry from Succession. Chase, interns are supposed to get here by nine. We've talked about this.
1: Dude, it's crazy I even came in. Last night, this couple I was banging accidentally locked me in their home sensory deprivation tank. And I was freaking screaming all night. Well, they didn't hear you? They're both deaf. Techno accident. But they still DJ, which is inspiring as-
0: Good morning, everyone. Ready to have a great show? Ugh,
1: Barb, you know I can't have management hovering over me before interviews. The last thing I need is some corporate fat cat purring money, money, money in my ear. You make twice my salary. It's not all about
2: money, Barb. Okay. showtime.
1: Scrooge McDuck. Boomer witch.
2: Zach, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. And I I have to tell you that I've just finished watching all six episodes of your new show, In the Know, and I I loved it. I loved it so much. I really, really enjoyed it. I can't believe you watched,
1: first of all, watching one show, (laughs) one episode sets you apart from the vast majority of- Oh, (laughs) really? Well, you know, I just, people have to write a million- things and do a million podcasts and they you know it's just i I don't know that i would watch all the shows but to watch all six is really amazing thank you so much for doing that well i would have watched it
2: either way but i was thankful that they're like in the (laughs) 22-ish minute range uh, and there are six of them so that made it a doable but good but uh but it was very enjoyable and um so you play the host of an npr type show who interviews celebrities and you open you the beginning of the show, we see you sort of practicing your intro in the mirror. And I have to tell you, as someone who interviews celebrities on a podcast, I felt a little bit too seen by this, uh, by this program.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it was like, it, it, you know, the thing about Lauren is like, he's so uncomfortably close to me in a way <laughs> that I really, really wish weren't true, but is true.
2: What are, what do you have in common with him?
1: Oh my God! Probably like bone density, um, smug, moral self satisfaction that is not backed (laughs) up by your actual life. Um, You know, uh, venal uh, self involvement. I, 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 the most devastating thing that that happened uh, was the other day. My girlfriend was like, "Oh, you're doing your mirror face," and I was like, "What?" (laughs) She was like, "Your mirror, you know, your mirror face." It's like, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, you know, you like, when you look at a mirror, you do this thing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm subconsciously adjusting my features in what I, s- s- I guess, think is a more flattering configuration. <laughs> it's just, I, I was just like, it just, I may as well just roll into the LA river and let me carry me away <laughs> to the sea.
2: Well, this guy, Lauren Caspian, um, I'd say he, he looks a little bit like Ira Glass. I don't know if that's intentional. Um, he, uh he's he's a little he has a little bit of terry gross going on in in the way he uh the way you do the interviews and the kind of style of show you're doing what were the sort of the uh how would you describe him and and what was the sort of inspiration for for that character?
1: Physically he is sort of a Frankenstein of a million different NPR hosts. Like <laughs> he's he's like part Michael Barbaro, who's I guess not strictly speaking NPR, part Terry Gross, part Ira Glass. Um Yeah, you kind of do
2: the Michael Barbaro hmm thing.
1: Yes, Ezra Klein, <laughs> this whole kind of tribe of Malcolm Gladwell. The, not we weren't we didn't restrict ourselves to specifically national public radio but we did a kind of the the, the public intelligentsia kind of east coast mostly you know um <laughs> public intellectual slash npr t- set um but the origin of the character was i think it was kind of gradual in the sense that for a long time, I've been fascinated by, and also, I've, I've had very complicated feelings about the list of people. I just, <laughs> I adore, I always thought if I couldn't be an actor, when people have said, like, if you could be an actor, a director, a writer, what would you do? I, I often would answer, I would love Terry Gross's job. I just think the idea of being able to take in beautiful and fascinating things and then ask questions of the people Um, Just seems like a dream job. I also find that in conversations with people, probably through as a result of my own shyness and my curiosity and others, I end up asking a lot of questions. Um, So I think I share that with Lauren. And then uh, there's a kind of puckish, like intellectual naughtiness that some some people have where it's kind of like the test of an idea isn't actually how truthful it is or or how much it reflects reality it's how much of a kind of delicious take it is where it's (laughs) you know it's like doesn't matter whether something is 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 is, (laughs) is accurate or or sincere it's just kind of like well everyone agrees that violence is wrong but what if it wasn't, you know, that kind of feeling <laughs> where it's it, it's like, what, dare I challenge the sacred cows, you know it's like that <laughs> kind of feeling and and I always find that to be like <laughs> just makes me <laughs> climb the walls um, so that's the sort of broad strokes of like where he, he's from for me, but but we, I, uh, the show was created with Mike Judge and Brandon Gardner and I'd worked for a long time with Mike on Silicon Valley and he'd noticed that I end up s- sort of interviewing people um, naturally in conversation and he also noticed uh, uh, how i kind of waft nprness around wherever i go Um, (laughs) and so he was like well what if we did a show that was a a stop motion show that had interviews where you're playing some sort of an npr host and i was like right and what if his name is lauren caspian and his girlfriend's also named lauren and (laughs) uh we came up with this whole backstory where his we didn't end up using it where his dream where his girlfriend, he he brags about how his girlfriend is a dreamer under DACA, but actually she's just like uh, an undocumented graduate uh, student from Montreal <laughs> who like just snuck into the country, and so he's like he's just constantly trying to claim his sort of portion of heroism that doesn't belong to him. But what I was going to say with the with the interview thing, I think something we really tried to do, and something I really admire Mike Judge for. Is that I feel like when he does satirical stuff, it's both totally unsparing and like cutting in a way, but it's also kind of warm. And it doesn't, the satirical point of view is not from on high looking down. It's like lateral. It's like, instead of aren't these people assholes, it's like, aren't we all such assholes? And that actually is a more my worldview. It's like, I don't I. I don't think I'm better than the people who are virtue signaling. I'm probably one of them more often than not. And so we wanted to try to understand the core needs, wounds, desires that motivate people to act in these kind of cringy ways and and to give each part equal due, the, both the obnoxious behavior and then the kind of more sympathetic, recognizably human, lovable, flawed thing that that's underneath the surface of the ocean, the part of the iceberg that you don't see, but that is most of it, you know? Does that
2: make sense? Yeah, I mean, in your announcement of the show, you had a quote where you said, uh, public radio reflects aspects of ourselves that we're embarrassed by. So it sounds like uh, it's something along those lines where it's you you, you identify, as you said, with this character and with this world, um, but that there's something about it that, that makes you uncomfortable at the same time.
1: Yeah, I I think that's definitely true. One of the things that made us like early on that helped give us the ideas, I was in it was right after um, George Floyd had been murdered. And there was a lot of, you know, I mean, probably everyone remembers what that time was like wherever they lived. And I was in Larchmont, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles that's very she she and wealthy. And I saw on somebody's front lawn, there was a sign that said defund the police. And then next to that sign was an ADT home security decal that re- that mentioned that they had armed cars. <laughs>
2: that, that that sums it up. And
1: I was like, "What?" I was just like, "Jesus Christ!" It's like, deep <laughs> on the police, but also we have armed mercenaries to protect our like, <laughs> yeah, our Audi SUV. It's just like, come on. Um, so. Uh, Yeah, I feel that way a lot. Something that I just don't think my ideology, I don't know that the person I would like to be, I think that the distance between the person I would like to be and the person I am is vast, particularly when it comes to kind of ideological stuff. You know, I sometimes worry about that where I'm like, is this all just cosmetic? Is it like, yeah artist. performative yeah like and uh, without even knowing it are the things that i believe just you know a kind of rouge i'm powdering my face with or is it something that i am prepared to walk the walk on and i it's an ongoing question i try i try not to be completely Passive about that, I, you know. I try, when I have those thoughts, I try to think, well, what would walking the walk look like, and do a little bit of it. But I fall very far short of what a reasonable, per- reasonable person would think is enough.
2: Yeah, it's. I was interesting what you're saying about the sort of lateral satire, uh, because you could imagine a version of this show that is a satire of public radio, sort of made by the right, that is very different and a lot less empathetic and a lot. Um, broader I guess or, or, or just not as sort of understanding about what what this world is um, so that must have been was that something that was on your mind like you didn't want to make uh, didn't you didn't want to just make like progressives the punchline entirely or <laughs> or sort of you know make it come off like the, do you think that I guess the question is do you think someone you um, you know who has that view of NPR would enjoy the show, or did you maybe not want to play too much into that um, and make it uh, that the audience?
1: That's a great question. Certainly, the purpose of the show was not to just be like the workplace comedy of the January sixth,
2: right? <laughs> <Ryan, laughs> <Yeah. laughs> insurrectionists. Like yeah, that, well, it's, or, it's it's not on Fox Nation either.
1: Yeah, but I think. Because there's such factionalism and people are so dug in politically and in terms of their identity, I do feel like there isn't that much self-ridicule happening across the with the political divide. In other words, I would be so fascinated if some Trump person like owned and made fun of what was excessive about themselves. I I even if I really you know, that would really interest me on the left too. I think like if the left was being more self-reflective and like, you know, like, well, we are, you know, it's like, I think there's something interesting about that. If it's funny, you know, I think that's the big test is like, is it funny? And I was, I was always like fascinated by that because to me, art, comedy, et cetera, that is the one, one of the places where you can really, Complicate people, where you can splinter people, or or uh, maybe splinter isn't even the right word, where you can show the multidimensionality and the the conflicts, the inner conflicts and contradictions, and to me that is why I I love TV films art of various forms, because it makes me feel less alone. Because when I interact with people in the world, I don't experience them as one thing. Usually, usually, they're like a very confusing, beautiful, frustrating scramble of like 17 things. And and just living in that kind of bird's nest with them is like a real adventure. Um, And I guess what we wanted to do is show people who have many different contradictory aspects. And I think the more we can experience ourselves and each other that way, as being not just one thing, but a lot of different things all at once, then my hope would be that if we could do that more, then we would have more of an appreciation for our own ridiculousness, more empathy for the other people, you know, um, maybe even more conviction because we'd know... I I don't know. I, I guess... I, I'm starting to sound like Lauren, like 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 describing <laughs> the utopia on the other side of my 20-minute stop motion comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How obnoxious.
2: But I but do you know what I'm saying? Does any of this make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it is it is a, a rare show in the sense of that sort of self-parody in a way that it's not it's not punching down at the other. It's kind of like looking introspectively, um, in a way, which makes it sound, as you said, a lot more uh serious than it is for a show that that is full of some pretty uh, absurd jokes and is a stop motion animation and and all of that. I want to ask about the interviews which are a big part of the show. Um and you mentioned, you know, people like Mike Tyson and Nora Jones. Um how what I I'm just sort of fascinated by the, the logistics of that because you're having these it's real we see the real people um for anyone who hasn't you know, hasn't seen the show yet in a sort of like Zoom setting um but they're talking to your character who is uh, a stop motion animation character um how how did you go about making those work? What was it like for the for the guests? How did you prep them? What did you sort of tell them was happening um and uh, and and how did you how did you pull that off?
1: We had this amazing booker named hillary who was who worked on um the Daily show, so she really allowed us to punch above our weight in terms of guests, like a first season animated a stop motion animated show where there's nothing for them to look at. It's like a kind of dicey proposition for, for actors and thinkers, celebrities, whatever, you know? So she got us really amazing guests. Then the way it worked is they would be on zoom, similar to what we're doing now. And when they turned on their zoom, Brandon Gardner who directed, co-created, ran the show with me, um, would talk to them and say, here's how it's going to work. It's going to be a, an interview. Just treat it like a normal NPR interview. And you don't have to pretend to be offended. If you're not offended, you can laugh. If something strikes you funny, just be yourself. Just react naturally. That's it. Um, in a minute, when when we start the interview, you'll just see a still image of Lauren Caspian, and, and you'll be talking to him. And so then he would switch over and it would just be a picture of Lauren, just a a still photo so that they weren't looking at my face. And we would talk for about an hour. And then I would have an iPad with a Google doc open where Brandon would have this reservoir of questions that our writers had come up with. And he would help curate which question was next and kind of like mission control you know and um and sometimes would like write a joke or pitch a joke or something so i could see that on the ipad as i'm talking to them
2: and that's all happening sort of live during during the interview wow yeah so you have to really i mean i know you have an improv background but that's that's some pretty high level uh improv with these real people and and sort of doing this interview in character with jokes um you know, live.
1: Yeah, I mean it was fun. Yeah, but yeah, it's a little overstimulating. I would just like pound Coke Zeros right before. <laughs> it's amazing how one of the things is like that's that's almost like chastening or something. You know, I've spent so much of my life learning how to improvise and all that stuff. And then I would interview these people who have no background in that, and they would be so funny and deep and <laughs> roll with the punches. Tegan and Sarah did this great bit, like we'd never met each other. They were like immediately like understood like how to play back and forth. Finn uh, Wolfhard was so, fun. I mean everyone, Mike Tyson gave these like profound, like like very deep answers. I mean, I was just shocked by how well everyone rolled with the punches and revealed themselves. You know, it's it really incredible. Now, Michael, when you're training for a fight, you famously listen exclusively to moody folk music.
2: No where I'm training nothing but hardcore hip-hop. Hardcore, the most um, destructive hip-hop, the most vile hip-hop, that's what I listen to when I train.
1: Right, but you must have trained to Carol King's rendition of You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman.
2: I would not. I would never use that song, sir. What about Joni Mitchell? No, I would not use Miss Mitchell.
1: Buffy St. Marie?
2: No. Joan Baez. No, no, listen.
1: Patti Smith. Vashti Bunyan? The McGarrigle sisters. No. But our researcher Fabian insisted that you love to shadow box while listening to Ladies of the Canyon. No, Fabian fucked up. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that, Michael, because any time I give any constructive criticism, she says all feedback is violence.
2: Well, violence is a state of mind. It's perspective on violence. That's not violent to you, but it's violent to her. Hmm.
1: Well, Michael, if you like strongly worded hip hop, you should listen to Lin-Manuel Miranda's rap about the West Wing. It's deliciously funky.
2: Was there anyone, was there a moment that stands out where someone really kind of rolled with it in a surprising way or, or, you know, came up with a, a joke that you were not expecting that made it into the show?
1: Mike Tyson opining on loss was like crazy. I mean, I've been fascinated by Mike Tyson for many years and I've, watched a million documentaries and his sh- Broadway show and books and stuff. And the combination, it's sort of what we were talking about before, being many things at once. Mike Tyson has been everything, right? He's been one of the kind of discarded, basically, you know, w- when he was a little kid, just one of the people who was just like allowed to live in really difficult circumstances without much in the way of support. Um, then he was the most you know, famous athlete in the world, or one of them, you know, he's been on every side of every dynamic, I think, you know, this, the scary guy, the the guy who's terrified of the world that I anyway, rich, not rich. So talking to him, I just wanted to kind of sometimes I it was one of the only times I sort of resented at moments, the obligation to be Lauren, because I just wanted to ask him (laughs) questions. And at one point, I just said, do you ever feel protective of the little kid that you used to be because he was up against so much? And he goes, no, he must walk through the fire. He must be burnt. And that was like, whoa, that's such an intense thing to say. And then another one was um, Roxane Gay. Roxane Gay, you know, writes editorials for The New York Times. She's a progressive writer. You know, she's this like she was so funny. A lot of times her columns will be serious, you know, her her stuff will be quite serious. She was really funny and kind of like provocative and playful. And she was so wonderful and down to clown, like in a way that I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, yeah, I, I was really impressed by her.
2: I don't want to re- reveal too much about the last episode, but you do have quite a lot of fun with Hugh Laurie, who's someone I know you've you've worked with before. Um, seems like you, you treated that one maybe a little differently.
1: <laughs> Hugh Laurie has a magic face. I really believe this. Hugh Laurie's face, I don't know. I, he, he can express... I feel like a broken record here because it's the same thing. His face can express... Tw- Three emotions all at the same time. When I first got my when I got my first television job, I went online and someone had posted a picture of me, and they said his face looks like a s- combination of sadness and food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> but Hugh Laurie, for example, his face could look like more than just sadness and food poisoning. It could look like sadness and food poisoning and desire, or sadness and food poisoning and um, elation, or whatever. I mean, I don't think his face looks like sadness and food poisoning, but I guess I think I understood their point about me.
2: Was that when you uh, joined The Office that somebody made that observation?
1: Yeah. I hadn't even been in an episode yet. I was like, oh, boy.
2: (laughs) They just saw your picture of you? I
1: was like, buckle up. Here we go.
2: (laughs) Coming up, much more on what it was like for Zach to get his first real TV job on The Office, and later how working on Silicon Valley... Made him distrust the tech world and why, despite that, he just decided to join TikTok at the beginning of 2024.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?
2: If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with some of Zach's former co-stars, like The Office's Mindy Kaling and Craig Robinson, Silicon Valley's Thomas Middleditch and Jimmy O'Yang, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now back to Zach Woods. I was looking back at um, your, you know, your work on that show, um, and it's just kind of it was interesting to think about what it must have been like for you as your first TV job, really joining the show in season 6 after it had been very well established and you're kind of coming in as almost an authority figure for these characters not one that's maybe respected that much but no but it's it's you it was kind of a, a strange you know power dynamic which is a big part of improv um what was it like for you to to kind of come into that show in that way
1: abject terror just so scared there, for a while, there were these children's movies where some kid would end up playing major league sports. <laughs> like, You know, I don't know. There was like Rookie of the Year or something where kid breaks his arm and then it heals in such a way that he can throw fastballs yeah, yeah. and then he ends up playing for the... It, I felt like that. I felt like it was just like all of a sudden it's, you know, I've been like playing stickball in the streets with my friends and then it's like you're at the world series and it's just like oh my god what am i supposed to do here
2: had you auditioned for the show when it started or were you not even sort of there yet in your in no. your career no i never auditioned and this like m-
1: this spectacularly kind and supportive casting director named Allison Jones who basically has populated american comedy just um we had a meeting in LA and she just said i'm going to help you And then she helped me. And it it was like, you know, I've talked about this before. And when I I, I say, like, for someone in Hollywood to say to someone who who has nothing to offer them, I want to help you. And then to mean it is (laughs) such an anomaly. But Alison Jones said it, which was strange. And she meant it, which was even stranger. And I will be forever in that woman's debt. She just got me on the show. They wrote a part for me. It's crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um what were your what are your memories of of actually you know going on set for the first time and and shooting your your first scenes
1: Was surprised by the layout you know you watch a show for enough years you kind of think you know where things are and then you walk in you're like wait that's where the that's where the bullpen is and that's where the HR is that makes no sense so that was I felt uh betrayed by the <laughs> by the geography of the space um I felt shocked by how kind everyone was you know, you have the kind of fantasy of like you can't, you can't sit here big dogging Hollywood stuff. You think like, oh, am I going to be the freshman who you know people shove in a locker? It could not have been more the opposite. Everyone was so warm. Kate Flannery went way out of her way to be so kind to me. Um, Leslie and Phyllis and everyone, everyone they they were just so warm and invo- immediately just. In not a showy way, it just kind of made me feel at home. And yeah, I remember shooting the first thing that I ever shot, which was a talking head, and John Krasinski was directing that episode, and he just let me improvise for a really long time. I think he probably I, I, my guess is they were running behind in the day because of it took a while, you know, to get to me that day. And so, in an industry where time is money, and everyone you know, a show like that too. People, if you run late, maybe people don't get to tuck their kids into bed. You know, it's, it's, um, but he made a point of creating a little bit of a sandbox for me to kind of loosen up in and, and get comfortable with uh, I, uh, and so I, he was really kind too.
2: You got to work a lot with Ellie Kemper on that show who I, I think you had, you'd worked with a lot before that, right? You knew her, was she the sort of the person you knew the best, uh, going into that show?
1: I knew Ellie from New York. We'd we'd improvise together and yeah, we'd spent years in New York. We'd done touring shows together. I mean, Ellie is irresistible. She's such a she has like such a um, wonderful combination of positivity and rage, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like she's so sunny and plucky, and she has a like kind of pippy long stockings. Um charm and then she also is like just a flame i think i mean this is my own and i haven't seen ellie in a long time so maybe she's maybe she's different now but but i remember thinking like wow what an interesting combination of like american is apple pie and also a little bit of a grenade in a in, in a great way you know in an ex- and it made her really exciting to watch on at Operate Citizen's Brigade, which is the theater we both worked at, and then certainly on screen, as millions have observed. Gabe, did Erin ever tell you that she loves you? (laughs) no, 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 (laughs) no. She wouldn't even let me say it. It was adorable. She'd plug her ears and scream her heart out. (laughs) Gabe,
0: can you stop talking? Because every word out of your mouth is like the squawk of an ugly pelican.
1: I got a tattoo for you.
0: I didn't ask you to get that Nike swoosh. Nobody did. You did that for you.
2: Just do it.
1: You were the it that I was just doing.
2: You know, I think at that time, The Office was very popular. It's way more popular now, probably, somehow. Um, how did how did you feel like it changed your life um, and your career getting that opportunity to be on that show?
1: Drastically. I mean, that was actually, it gave me a career. It gave me, you know, all kinds of access and things I wouldn't have had. It was my first brush with being recognizable. I remember like the day before the first episode aired and then the day after and going into a bar and having someone just be like, oh, I'm thinking like, oh, how strange.
2: Yeah, that was the first time you really were recognized that
1: way? Yeah, and then I started reading stuff online and that was a bad idea. <laughs> Because what, what, what kind of stuff were you reading? It, I would only really I would gravitate towards whatever negative stuff I could find. And whenever I would find that, I it hurt my feelings so bad. I would just read this because I already had such imposter syndrome. And, you know, it's a character who, as you said, is like he's not a lovable character in the traditional sense, or maybe in any sense. You know, he's he's this kind of impotent uh, scheming, insecure, awkward guy. So, um, so yeah, when I would read stuff that was, that was cruel or, or even just unenthusiastic, I'd just be like, oh, I remember feeling, uh, lying on the bed in my uh, girlfriend at the time's apartment and just being like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I don't know if I, it's, it's, if this is how it works, you just like, do this stuff and then there's this kind of greek chorus of (laughs) hatred i i i don't know if that's something i really want to do and what would happen is then the two things kind of blended where i would be out i would see someone look at me seemingly recognize me and then I would assign them in my head one of the terrible things I'd read Be like oh that's probably like someone who feels that blank you know fill in terrible comment so I got in a little bit of a tailspin with that and then I was like oh I have to stop reading this I just can never look at this stuff I have a an I had an acting coach who I work to this day anytime I have an acting part I work with her her name's Anya Saffer and she's a genius but I remember at one point telling her I was like you know I I'm having such a hard time. Like, this is just like, I I don't know. I'm such a delicate flower. I just can't stand it when I read this stuff. And she looked at me with this kind of crazy, witchy intensity. And she got very quiet. And she smiled, this sort of strange smile. And she said, but Zach, those are the critics. And we know what we think of them. And I was (laughs) like, what? She's like, we know what we think of them. Right, and I was like, right, and she was like, right, and I swear to God, after that conversation, I never read anything again. It was like, it was wild.
2: I did not know that the, the the part of Gabe was written for you in the office. I mean, w- given everything that you said about him, what did what did that uh, what did that tell you about yourself <laughs> and and how and how the writers saw you?
1: Well, I the only thing I'd done at that point was this movie called um, In the Loop, which was Armando right, Iannucci's. Yeah. First feature film yeah and in that i played this like very backbiting kind of uh brittle but aggressive young staffer at the state department so my guess is they saw that and they were like okay we we see what area he can play competently in hey i just want to say congratulations your paper got a major citation you must be psyched that karen brought it up yeah well that was you know her call, yes. not not mine. Uh, you couldn't write a paper that clashes more violently with the current climate than the one you wrote, if you were trying. And it seems like you almost were trying.
0: I wasn't trying, so, okay. believe me. You're
1: like the woman from The Omen. Uh, you've given birth to a demon, and now it's gonna kill you.
0: You probably identify with the kid from The Omen, right? Ooh. See, you're an only child, aren't you?
1: I gotta say, I, I don't understand how my parents' limited reproductive ability reflects badly on me. I'm the sperm that made it, so. <laughs> Liza. Uh, <laughs> I'm being called by our boss. Oh, okay. Retreat. Thank you. See you later. Yeah, have fun with yourself. Okay, have fun with your uh, career kryptonite. I think in my case, the insecurity was something I shared with Gabe, you know, the kind of sense of maybe not being enough. Um, uh, But I think the difference is Gabe would become... Uh, manipulative or aggressive or scheming and as a way of trying to manage that core feeling of inadequacy. Whereas for me, I think I would turn inward. Um, (laughs) I would become much more just kind of quiet and (laughs) and morose.
2: (laughs) The other character that you're probably best known for is Jared on Silicon Valley. Um, Was that one that you, auditioned for. I mean, I'm sure it, it sort of evolved based on you and, and your um improvisation. But was that what was who was that character on the page, maybe versus who he became?
1: That guy on the page... well initially I auditioned for Ehrlich, which was TJ Miller's part. It was this kind of boisterous alpha guy. But, yeah, the two um, of you
2: are are pretty different performers. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, I
0: auditioned
1: for it when I first did it. They had him in this kind of like micro micro suede jacket. And he was, I think, initially was going to be a little bit more of a venture capitalist kind of slick operator guy. I just think a lot of shows are like families where they, they sort of adhere to a familial archetype. And I just realized somehow through the writing, through improvising, through talking to the people who were making it, that that Jared was the mother, the kind of self-denying mother. Um, (laughs) And there's a writer named Carson Mell, who actually helped us do some punch-up work on this one, on on, uh, In the Know, who wrote the first episode after the pilot got picked up, where Jared really has stuff to do. He and I had worked together or met together, and I credit him a lot with also helping sort of shepherd Jared in a direction that felt like, more working land did, ultimately. You are still in a room with Gavin. So? We're partners. What's your point? He and his his posse of, of bandits and cutthroats will turn on you in a second. You need me, the half-crazed, half-Apache, who will do anything to get your back. I'll scalp Gavin if I have to, and all the rest of those pale-faced sons of bitches. I'll kill them with knives. I'll kill them with guns. I'll kill them with my hands. I'll talk them into suicide. It doesn't matter. All right, Jared, I... I think what you're asking is, you want a job? If you think you can find a place for me.
2: Yeah, of course, Jared. Yeah. You're more than welcome to work on this. <sighs> but uh, just to be clear, you're not going to stab anyone, are you? <laughs> oh, it feels good to laugh. Oh.
1: <laughs> uh, so, so that's a no, then? <laughs> Richard.
2: We were talking about satirizing the public radio world. Obviously, Silicon Valley was this great satire of the tech world. What do you feel like you learned about that whole very sort of opaque to a lot of people uh, world by working on that show for so many years?
1: You're very good at this. You ask really good questions. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, who am I to say you're good at? I just mean like it's nice. It's an interesting, <laughs> you, this is like such thoughtful questions. Sometimes it you're like, yeah, I appreciate you watching it and you've obviously like researched and yeah, it's really nice. Um, okay. What did I learn about tech?
2: Yeah. And sort of who these people are. Cause I think they're very like, we don't, we we like feel like we know a lot about them, but maybe we don't. And it's just a, it's an odd world that seems to only be getting stranger as time goes by.
1: I will say that I generally like people and I'm generally interested in people. Um, I find most people to be sympathetic and, and lovable. That was also true of many of the people who I met in Silicon Valley, but I was startled by how many people I met who gave me the willies because they would look at you with like Terminator eyes where, you know, in the Terminator, I mean, dating myself here, but like, you know, like there's a lot of movies like this where you see a person through a robot's point of view and you can see all the data kind of scrolling on the side of the image where it's like height, weight, da, 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 like <laughs> point of origin, da, you know? And I felt like that when I would talk to people sometimes where I was like, I could almost like hear the scroll going on in their head and the evaluation of, assets and liabilities, strengths and weaknesses, what could this person be, you know, it was just, it felt very objectifying in a weird way. And that, and I was thinking, if I feel objectified under these circumstances, if you were a woman in these, you know, hugely disproportionately male environments, and there's this kind of natural objectification that everyone is doing to each other, where it's this kind of I don't know, the slightly dehumanizing gaze. And then you add on top of it, the fact that you're a woman, it must just be like, oh my God, it must be, you must just want to like wear a raincoat to work to keep like the bad energy off of you. Like, and and I think, so... Yeah, it was a mix. There were like people who are passionate and starry eyed and full of life and dreams. And then there were people who would look at you like you were uh, a steak to be carved up. And, <laughs> and, it, and it was a very weird mix. I mean, the other thing that someone said that I thought was really interesting, one of the writers said this, he, he said, you know, if you imagine Mark Zuckerberg, for example, right, just to pick one, if you imagine someone, has a kind of social liability. Maybe they're not, they have a difficult time interacting with people, whatever. Then in a kind of enterprising and adaptive way, they create a a tool for themselves to help them. But then because they're so entrepreneurial and, and brilliant in their way, they manage to proliferate that tool and sell that tool and get everyone using that tool. So, so it's like, if I need a cane because my leg is weak, or you know I have an injury or whatever, but then I'm so entrepreneurial that I figure out a way to sell you a cane, even though your leg is fine. And then you start using this cane all the time. Then your leg starts to atrophy and ends up being like my leg was when I realized I needed the cane. And he was saying that this is a pattern that you see in Silicon Valley where people will try to have these kind of adaptive responses, social deficits in their own life and then they will scale the adaptive tool and then everyone will atrophy in reaction to the fact that they've adapted (laughs) these tools. I don't know if it's true or not, but I found it to be a fascinating, um, interpretation of it, you know, and I've thought about it a lot since.
2: And, and meanwhile, you just joined, uh, social media in 2024.
1: (laughs) This is really, I mean, this is, I, I said to, this is a gross way of putting it, but I said to my I don't even want to say it's too horrible. But I but I have to say, as a 39-year-old man signing up for TikTok, there <laughs> is a moment of cringy self-reflection where you're like, oh my, is this like my Corvette? Like, am I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, am I like... Yeah,
2: and you're really playing to the algorithm, too.
1: There you go. But what I'm trying to do for that is, here's, here's my theory, right? Well, one of the things is like, I don't have a kid, right? But I think... People who have kids will talk about like, well, I went to this thing and I did this song and dance that felt really <laughs> compromising, but it's for my kids. So, um, you know, whatever. I just bit the bullet. For me with social media, it's counter to every impulse I have, but I have all these things like this show's coming out and then there's all these other things that I'm developing. I really want to make sure that those things reach an audience. And I have no idea if social media will help with that or not um but i was like i want to leave no stone unturned and for it's, it's
2: uh, unfortunately it's, it's the reality of our of our world
1: i like so far i really like tiktok because to me tiktok is like you're making these like weird little movies and that feels better than just being like here's me in a cardigan <laughs> like
2: the yeah, idea of like
1: putting pictures back to your is- ucb days yeah, like making like little movies, like that's fun and silly. Like I'm down for that, but something about just being like, "Here's my family on Christmas." No, no shade to anyone yeah. who does it, but oh, it just yeah. feels yeah. scary to me. I just wouldn't. I, I, I just have no yeah. instinct. it. you're for taking
2: that. a different approach.
1: For now, wait to, to tomorrow. You'll see a picture of my family, <laughs> and we're all in bikinis <laughs> with all like right, products, so, yeah. with like holding like, <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> holding products. Hashtag ad, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so now it's time, uh, we're going to end with our segment called The First Laugh. So we're going to run through some of these questions about firsts in your, uh, in your life and career, starting with the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up. What comes to mind as something that just really connected with you?
1: There was a children's book where there was a picture of a man and a bear. And it said, algae met a bear. The bear met algae. The bear was bulgy. The bulge was algae. And it's the story of a man meeting a bear and then being eaten by the bear and then becoming a bulge in the bear's belly. I remember as a little kid thinking that was very. I thought that was. And something about the sound of it, algae met a bear, a bear met algae. The bear was bulgy, the bulge was algae. It clearly stuck with you. Yeah, it did. Do
2: you remember the first time that you felt like you were funny, that you could make other people laugh?
1: Tomorrow, baby. That's what I'm hoping for.
2: (laughs) Any day now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm waiting. (laughs) i went on tiktok hopefully that'll help (laughs) yeah there you go um
2: well i know you you started comedy very young you did you started at ucb at 16 um which is you know i think anyone who does that really kind of knows what they're knows what they want or or sort of were, we're going for it at a young age do you remember the first like real laugh that you got um at ucb whether it was in a class or in a show or or something where you felt like you might have uh uh, some sort of skill at, at, at improv and in, in that world? Well, the truth is I didn't, I was just
1: kind of going to fuck around. I, I was not some um driven comedy aspirant. I wasn't thinking like I can't, I want a career in comedy. I had wanted to be a jazz musician and that had kind of seemed decreasingly likely. So then I had all this time where I used to be like playing jazz and I was like, oh, this sounds fun. I'll just try this. I think if I'd had to carry the weight of professional ambition through that, it would have stopped me. But I think because it felt like kind of a lark, I was just like, okay, let's go. But quickly, then I became very invested in it. Um, First lap. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But I do remember on my first day of my first class of improv school, (laughs) they asked everyone to go around and say what it brought them to the class. And I went, train? the teacher who's this guy, Billy Merritt, who's a genius of an improviser and a very kind man was like, okay, but what really brought you? And then I said, well, I'm 45 years old, but I have a condition that makes me look like a young boy. And everyone gave me like a pity laugh, like, "Ha and then I was like, no, really. And then everyone got really quiet, because they were like, (laughs) oh, maybe this guy's really sick. And then I was like,
2: Nah, yeah. You know, like I was just like you were ready to do bits, right? right I was so one.
1: obnoxious. I was so <laughs> it was so obnoxious. It was so inappropriate to the environment. It was so thirsty and weird. And Billy Merritt, who like Allison Jones, was like someone who at an early point could have totally clipped my wings, but out of the goodness of their hearts, did not. Was like okay, like you know, he kind of was like gentle about it. I will be forever in his debt because I don't know that I would have been as generous, but he was so sweet with me and sort of says like, Oh, this kid's just nervous. He's just trying to make himself at home.
2: Do you remember the first time you met one of your comedy heroes and what that experience was like to, to meet them for the first time?
1: I sat in a room with Norm MacDonald once and didn't say a word. I was with Mike Judge. What was the
2: room? Yeah. It was at
1: some festival or something. I might've been at like Montreal just for laughs, or South by Southwest. I really don't remember. All I have is this image of me in a room, sitting with Mike Judge and Norm Macdonald, and not being able to talk.
2: Were they talking?
1: Not that much. A little.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is there something in your career that you said no to that you now kind of wish that you had said yes to?
1: Harry Potter. They. I should have. I should have taken it. I mean, just the money would have been really <laughs> life changing. <laughs> and to be clear, yeah, it would have. Yeah. Yeah, and to be clear, they wanted me to play they were gonna make her my Hermione male because they were so impressed by my audition.
2: (laughs) Um on the flip side, anything that you said yes to that you now kind of wish you had said no to?
1: Um that's a great oh yeah. Early, early, early on I did this weird TV pilot that some guy had like sold his house in England to pay for. And he was like, my wife said don't sell the house, but I was like, fuck it. I'm gonna sell the house. And it was this insane, insane pilot that we shot Like they used one of the actress's houses as like a location. Then there was this like horrible joke in the pilot where it was this woman. She was black and she was talking about her son and there was some reference to his penis. And the actress who was playing this character appropriately didn't want to make a joke about her. It was just it was basically a racist joke. And this woman was like, you know, I'm really not comfortable with that. And the director responded by pulling me into the hallway and being like, do you think I should fire her? Meanwhile, (laughs) we're in her house. And I've never acted in anything. And I was like, I don't know. Like, no, like you're in her house. Like, what are you talking <laughs> about? We, like, what are we going to shoot now? Yeah. And I was also just like, this is right. Like, I, I I just had this dawning realization where like, what the fuck is this? This is like, this is a guy who's just like really capitalizing on the desperation of unemployed actors to make them like do compromising things that aren't funny and make them feel bad. <laughs> and, and then there's this kid in it who I guess they've like flown in from, or oh, no, no, no. I think he was like a, this is i think he must have been like a russian immigrant or something i think his parents had moved here first because they wouldn't have had the money to fly him in from russia and at one point they the shooting day was going so long it was taking forever and this kid was getting restless and he was playing and uh you know just being a kid and the director went up to him and went hey he's like you settle down or i will send you back to russia I was like, this guy's a psychopath, so I wish I hadn't done that.
2: Well, at least it didn't get picked up.
1: No, that was Silicon Valley. It went through a lot of <laughs> it went through a lot of rewrites. Yeah, wow,
2: yeah. 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 It lasted a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um finally, is there a story or memory from your career that really makes you laugh now but was not funny when it happened?
1: I, I mean, it was a little funny when it happened, but I used to do commercials, like audition for commercials to pay the bills. Sometimes we would shoot commercials. And I remember showing up to do <laughs> a commercial audition where it was like 10am. It was kind of like just north of Union Square. It was cold out in my reg- memory. And I walked into this like fluorescent lit casting room and they're like, okay, here's a spot you're going to put on this Rastafarian wig with the and you're gonna take she they they go take your shirt off, put on this Rastafarian wig, and then the there's a, gonna be a woman you're gonna feed her a starburst with your fingers. And I was like, okay, I think it was a starburst. It was some candy. I don't remember. Anyway, so I did this audition where I was shirtless and I. But this poor woman is like, like I wouldn't want to in an audition eat candy off of like some strange person's hand. So we were both auditioning. So anyway, so I'm in this Rastafarian wig under the fluorescent lights. But the thing that happens when I took off my shirt, I have a something called a pectus excavatum, which is like a little dent in my chest. So I saw the casting director just like look at it, like kind of perplexed. And then I was just like, oh, there's no way I'm gonna get this part because you have to be sure and they don't, you know, I have a hole in my chest. So so then <laughs> so I knew I wasn't getting the part. And then they realized like they'd scheduled it wrong. So there weren't enough guys. So they're like, do you mind just staying? We want you to just stay and read with everyone. So for like 45 minutes, I just stood in this fluorescent room with my shirt off and my Rastafarian wig feeding women starbursts or whatever, or Kit Kats, or I don't remember what it was, but, and that was really like, wow. When I think of like my immigrant great grandparents, traveling from from russia to have a new life if they knew that their great grandson was like shirtless in a rastafarian wig like giving people colds like
2: (laughs) yeah that's a real like what am i doing moment
1: yeah it's a real what am i doing moment.
2: well i'm glad everything worked out after that
1: has it i hope so we'll see
2: i think so yeah well the new show is is great in the know i really really liked it and i think that that people are going to enjoy it and um Yeah, Zach, it's been really, really fun talking with you and getting to know you. And um, yeah, good luck with everything.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for talking to me. And thanks for watching the show and asking such thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. You are very different from Lauren
2: Caspian. (laughs) Oh, that's good to know. Okay, bye. Thank you. Thank you to Zach Woods for being my guest on this week's show. You can stream all six episodes of In The Know starting tomorrow, January 25th, On Peacock. I really hope you check it out. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.